Good morning. It's a joy to be back with you on our two-week trip uh, through Mississippi and then up through um, Kentucky. And uh, it's a lot warmer here, but it's a whole lot less humid. <laughs> it's really warm in Mississippi. Take uh, your Bibles and turn with me to Third John. Tim read the first, the entire book, all 15 verses of it, which I asked him to do. We're going to look only this morning at the first four verses, at the first four verses. So once you find your place, please stand with me to read, to honor the reading of God's word. We'll read the first four verses here, pray, and then see what God would have for us this morning. Beginning in verse one, the elder to the beloved Gaius whom I love in truth. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. For I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth as indeed you are walking in the truth. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Father in heaven, we ask, Father, for your spirit to work afresh in us this morning, that we might understand the truth and that you might make application in our lives, that you might pour out your grace upon us, Father, as we study this word, this living word that is sharp, sharper than any other tool possible. And it's active and we pray that you would uh, increase its activeness this morning upon our hearts. That we might be drawn in closer fellowship and bond with you. That we might see afresh your majesty. That we might see afresh your love for us. That the truth that we study this morning might be so profound that we would be left with no other, no other possibility but to respond in worship. Respond in love. Respond in admiration to you as our God. We give you all the glory due unto your name. In Jesus' precious name we pray, amen. You may be seated. Third John was written, getting some historical context here, in the same time frame as probably that of First and Second John. John is writing to the church, presumably from the town of Ephesus, and probably around 90 A.D., First John, as you will probably remember, is a letter explaining the practical outworking of the gospel in the life of a believer and proclaiming the truth of the integrity and soundness of the gospel. And we pointed out many times in First John the phrase that you may know. John writing to the church, encouraging that, them and how they might be assured of their salvation and how they might have no doubt of the surety of their salvation as it is based in the work of Christ alone. But then we have 2nd and 3rd John. And these are letters. These are personal letters. 2nd uh, John written to a lady. And 3rd John here written to a gentleman. And it's almost as if if you study, which is the reason we're going in this order, study 1st John, you get the textbook and then you get 2nd and 3rd John, which were really almost the case studies to what John is writing there in 1st John and, and dealing practically in 2nd and 3rd John with the issues that he brought up in 1st John. 
You saw that last week if you were here in Second John. John is writing on how to deal, how to address false leaders or false teachers in the church. Something that he addressed already in 1 John chapter 4. Here in 3 John, he addresses how to deal with those who support the truth. 2 John had to deal with those who are against the truth. 3 John had to deal with those who support and stand for the truth. And he writes to his friend Gaius. And this isn't the only time we see this, this man, presumably, in Scripture. This friend Gaius, uh, the, the name Gaius was very popular during this period of history. And there's other Gaiuses in scriptures. In 1 Corinthians 1.14, the Apostle Paul baptizes a man from Corinth named Gaius. And he actually stays in his home, as we see in Romans 16.23. In Acts 19.29, we get another Gaius. This is a uh, traveling companion of Paul from uh, Macedonia. Luke identifies him in, in Acts from Macedonia, which would be modern-day Greece. And he's actually uh, a man that's almost persecuted by the friends, uh, by the uh, man Demetrius in Acts 19, and probably would have been killed if it not had been the Lord's intervention through the city clerk there. In Acts 20, you get another Gaius, this time from a town called Derby, which would be modern day Turkey. And then this fourth mention of a man named Gaius we have here in 3 John. And apparently it's a good friend. Look with me at verse 1. The elder, that's John, to the beloved or a good friend whom I love in the truth. So we have a, a, a good friend and a, a friend that is well loved. You see that in verse 5 as well. Do you see it again? Beloved is a faithful thing. Verse 11 uh, beloved or good friend, someone I love dearly. So we have a very uh, close friend of Paul's that Paul is writing this letter to. But there's other things we can learn about this man named Gaius. Names are very important. We, that's one of the reasons we rejoice in knowing the names of God is you can learn the character of God as you study the names. And even now in modern day, you'll oftentimes see someone uh, have characteristics in their life that mimic the meaning of their name. Gaius is no exception. Gaius means happy or one who rejoices. And evidently this is a gentleman who is rejoicing in the truth, one who is rejoicing with others. You see here in verse 5, um, he has a, a ministry of hospitality. Beloved, it is a faithful thing you do in all your efforts for these brothers, strangers as they are. He brought them in to his home and he ministered to them. And Paul's friend in 1 Corinthians, guys, had the same line of thinking. He had a ministry of hospitality with Paul. So we, we oftentimes see and these characters in the Bible that are kind of um, overlooked, they're just mentioned once or twice, we see manifestations of God's grace in their Christian life that the Holy Spirit wants to use in our lives to help us imitate. John Bunyan even saw this man Gaius in Scripture and used his name for the innkeeper in the Pilgrim's Progress. There was a connection that John Bunyan saw as well between hospitality and the meaning of this gentleman's name. But what about us this morning? 
why do we have this letter? Because really when you read it, it's almost like we've violated someone's privacy. As if we've received a, a postcard or an email not intended for us and yet you find you don't have all the context and the background and the relationship for this letter but you find it juicy enough that you want to kind of try to read between the lines and figure out what's going on. Why has the Holy Spirit determined that this word be included in the closed canon, being inspired and for us. I would submit to you that I think if we would take all of Third John, all 15 verses which we will teach on, but if you take all of them and you sum up in one theme, it's, this whole book is revolving around uh, truth. We, we could see that the Holy Spirit's desire is that all Christians at all times in any place along the line of history be reminded and stirred up to be about the business of delighting in, about the business of identifying in others, about the business of defending earnestly, about the business of proclaiming faithfully the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ. Christ being the way, the truth, the life and to delight in that, to delight in seeing it in others, to delight in proclaiming it faithfully. And you, you will see here in, in, a, in coming weeks how John uh, delights in defending it as he then approaches again someone within the church that is proclaiming falsehood. John delights to proclaim the truth, to stand for it and defend it faithfully. And here he has, for the first time, really, a, a friend who he admonishes to us as the church, as the modern-day church, to say, this is a man that we should emulate. This is a man that we should imitate. This man is about the truth. You as well, here today, let us be about the truth. Let us have our lives uh, always being about the truth, defending it, proclaiming it, identifying it in one another. And then proclaiming it faithfully to those around us, our family members, our neighbors, our co-workers, our local church members, proclaiming the truth to one another. And you could say that John's aim for this letter is found in verse 4. Look at with me. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. But I would submit to us this morning that we go even a step back and say that that's not just that we would study this book so we could have great joy in walking in the truth, but we actually step back and say, we would like to be like John and, and, and identify in others and rejoice with in others the truth that is there. Not just that we would walk in the truth, but that we would rejoice in seeing it in others as well. I want to take now this four verses and revolve it around three points this morning. And the first point is this. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central theme of the Christian life. The truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central theme of the Christian life. It is the governing principle. It is the hub by which everything else comes out of. And that which we should always refer back to. David Pallison in his book, Speaking Truth in Love, Counsel and Community, says, We must know that God's way is different, radically different, 
from every other option available. Other counsels, other schemes, other interpretations, practices, systems. The only sanity, listen to this, the only sanity is to know him who is. Anything else promotes our insanity. Anything else promotes our insanity. Truth operates differently. The truth operates differently from every other wisdom on earth. John knows this. We saw this in 1 John, the book of 1 John. He he writes many times that we would know the truth. And he's speaking that that truth being the gospel of Jesus Christ. That truth which we should always have as our central theme. To put it simply, scripturally, profoundly, he who knew no sin became sin for us that we might become the righteousness of God. We who had no truth in us, only falsehood. Our lives were based not upon truth, but upon lies. We made choices and decisions based not upon truth, but upon our standard of right and wrong. Yet God, comma, in his richest mercy and grace, sent his only son, manifested his love toward us in the form of his only son, that through his son, through the way, the truth and the life, we might have a relationship with God the Father. And as Christians now, wherever you are in your maturity of walk, we never leave that truth. We grow in it, yes. We understand it more fully. We apply it more faithfully. But it's still the centrality of all that we are as believers. It's still to be the central theme, the central, the centerpiece. Because even now, if you go to the heaven of heavens, what is being proclaimed? The saints are now crying out before the throne, worthy is the lamb that was slain. Even in heaven, our central theme is going to be the worthiness of Christ who was slain on our behalf. So it's not just the central theme now on this earth, but it will be in heaven. And notice John in verse 2 of 3 John here. Beloved, I pray that all may go well with you and that you may be in good health as it goes well with your soul. The priority there of the central theme of the gospel being that which rejuvenates and energizes and strengthens the soul of the believer and is of much greater importance, importance than even one's health. Yes, though the... A good health with a good soul is, is something that can be used by God and we pray for, which is why Paul is, John, excuse me, is praying for this here, that your soul that is strengthened by the gospel might be brought alongside a good healthy body so that that grace might be manifested in an even greater way to others in the church. But the priority here is not the health of this individual Gaius, it is that his soul is walking in the truth. Point number one, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the central theme or the governing principle of the Christian life. Point number two, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is to be the central theme of our relationships. It's to be the central theme of our relationships. Notice 
John mentions the word truth four times in the first four verses. He mentions it once in verse 1, whom I love in truth. He mentions it twice in verse 3, for I rejoiced greatly when the brothers came and testified to your truth, as indeed you are walking in the truth. And then he mentions it once in verse 4. I have no greater joy than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. John is simply imitating Christ in that his love, his relationships, the love of his rela- for others, his relationships is based upon truth and then, his tr- then the truth is administered in love. John Piper says, love cannot be cut loose from the truth of God's will. Truth shapes how to love. And these two things, love and truth, though oftentimes at odds with one another in our minds, are really not in confrontation at all. They're in lockstep with one another. They go hand in hand. They cannot be separated. Because our love, as we saw in 1 John, must be governed by the truth, the truth, not our truth, but the truth of Scripture. And then that truth is to be administered, is to be given to others in love. So it's, it's got to be together. Truth without love is not love at all because the truth, Jesus Christ, the Son of God, came in love for us. So those things are together in the gospel. And love without truth is not love at all because it is then based upon each individual's standard rather than God's truth. So they have to be together. And John sees this. And we should be about the work of encouraging. Notice what John is doing here. He's, he's, he's encouraging, he's identifying in Gaius the truth. He's identifying in Gaius the evidences of God's grace in his life. That he's walking in the truth, that he's walking in the ways of God. And he doesn't identify the things that are fading. He doesn't identify his athletic prowess or his his brain and how well he thinks or his handsomeness or his beauty or his strength. He identifies things that will never fade. That, that is, he identifies the grace of God in his life. And that's our example as well. Think of the, the strength and beauty of a marriage when there's mutual encouragement in identifying the truth of God in one another's lives. You know, they say that <clears throat> having an eye for detail is a, is a gift, is something good. And that's been identified in my life, having an eye for detail. But my sin loves to take something good and twist it so that that eye for detail becomes an eye that is critical. An eye that sees and focuses and deals with shortcomings in other people's lives to the detriment of identifying the grace of God in those lives. And it's much easier for all of us to identify shortcomings in one another's lives because no one's perfect, no, not one. We all fall short of the kingdom of God. So it's very easy for us to look at another person and say, well, look at that. You know, if they just fix that, look at that person's sin. Oh man, he, he's lazy. Or wow, he is wasting his time or oh that person boy he's that was a critical word boy that look that he gave his wife or his children mm, that wasn't very loving 
or if he'd only do this better, he would be a better businessman. Or if he'd only be, do that better, she would be a better wife. We, it's, it's easy for us to do this because we're, we're not perfect. But what did Christ do? He loved me and he loved you when there was nothing good at all to identify within you. And that's what we are now called to do is carry his love forward to others around us by seeing that lovely grace in the Christian's life and identifying that and promoting it and encouraging it. In so doing, we magnify the work of Christ in that person's life. We give him the glory. To identify something in a person's life that is materialistic is not necessarily going to give God glory, although it can. But so much greater is to identify the work of God where we see a person who says something that but for the grace of Christ in their life, they would not say. They would have spoken a sharp word and said something happened. The work of God happened within them and they said a kind word where that person could have flown off the handle and yet they didn't. Why? Because of the grace of God in their life. He gets the glory when we do that and we are to, we are to imitate John in this. That's not to say that we should not deal with sin in one another's lives, but it should come after I'm dealing with the sin in my own heart and in percentage, the dealing with sin in another's life should be less than how often we identify what God is doing in someone's life. John has a, is a great example here to encouraging one another in how we see God's grace working out in our lives. And it goes without saying, I believe, but needs to be said that the merit, that marriage and parenting is where identifying God's grace is one of life's hardest places to do so, but where the most fruit is reaped. When we as parents identify in our children the work of God, it's so easy to 24-7 identify places they could improve or be better at or done things slightly better or differently. But when we can take that time to lovingly identify the truth within them, God's grace within them, to do that in our marriage. Yes, they need to grow probably in all those other areas, but that encourages them to look, at for, look to God even more for the strength to do better, to be more glorifying to him. Lastly, third point, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ is the source of our highest joy in him and one another. It's the highest, it's the source of our highest joy in him and one another. D.A. Carson in his book, For the Love of God, says, in a world where many Christians derive their deepest joy from advancement, ease, promotions, financial security, good health, popularity, and a host of other things, it is delightful, not to say challenging, to hear an apostle, meaning John here, testify that nothing stirs his joy more than to hear that his children are walking in line with the gospel that tells us all we need to know of his heart and of where we should find our pleasures too. Our joy in life as Christians is not something that we conjure up. 
It's in response to something that we value. Your happiness and joy comes as a response to something. Something that we value. And there is nothing greater. That we, and we know this. There's nothing greater. There's nothing more valuable in life than the work of Christ upon our behalf. There's nothing more. As Christians, a Christian's joy should be higher than, than any others that are around him. And if you see this morning, in, in, in practical application here, if we see this morning that our joy is waning, it's not, it's not to the extent that we desire, the answer is not simply to just somehow muster this within ourselves. The answer is to go to Scripture and see again the magnificence of this God with which we have no ability outside the work of Christ to have any relationship with at all. The song, I Run to Christ, puts it well. I run to Christ when chased by fear and find a refuge sure. Believe in me, his voice I hear, his wounds and words secure. I run to Christ when torn by grief and find abundant peace. I too had tears, he gently speaks, thus joy and sorrow meet. I run to Christ when worn by life and find my soul refreshed. Come unto me, he calls through strife. Fatigue gives way to rest. I run to Christ when vexed by hell and find a mighty arm. The devil flees, the scriptures tell. He roars but cannot harm. I run to Christ when stalked by sin and find a sure escape. Deliver me, I cry to him. Temptations yields to grace. I run to Christ when plagued by shame and find my one defense. I bore God's wrath. He pleads my case, my advocate and friend. The gospel is what feeds, is what is the source, is what is the, is the spring by which all joy in our lives flows out of. You see that. John is saying here, Beloved, I have no greater joy, nothing greater than to hear that my children are walking in the truth. Does that mean this is more of a joy than actually he has in in Christ's work for him? No. But what he's saying is that when our joy in the truth of the gospel is in its right place, central to our lives... When the gospel is central to our lives and joy comes from that, when that is that which we value most, then our joy is a response to that. Then that joy is added to, is is increased when we walk through life with those who are by his grace walking in that same truth as well. Our ability to rejoice in the truth in one another comes as a result of Christ being truth for us. We often say, well, our joy should be found in Christ and Christ alone. There's truth to that. But the scriptures also teach that once we find that joy in him alone, that we will find greater joy as well. Our our joy will be increased and added to as we identify others who are finding joy their joy in Christ as well. So our joy is increased. Our joy is 
is exponentially increased. But that joy is only going to be increased when we as Christians know the truth, are defending the truth, are identifying the truth in one another, are promoting the truth, are proclaiming the truth of the gospel. It will not be increased if that, if what Christ has done for us has lost its centrality. And the only way to bring that back into centrality is very, very simply, go again to scripture, observe the magnificence of this God, And because of his magnificence, because of his holiness, because of his power, because of his greatness, thereby we having no ability to come into fellowship and a relationship with him, but by the work of Christ. And when you do that, then the gospel then becomes central again. Then that is our greatest joy. And then we are able then, by that grace, to identify it in one another's and to rejoice with it in others' lives. May we be Christians knowing the truth that stand for truth in all areas of life. This is desperately needed. That we would stand for truth, that we would not shirk from it. Oh, I'm praying, praying earnestly that those serving our nation in the capital would for once in my lifetime stand firmly upon truth and shut down Planned Parenthood. Not just defund them, shut them down. Stand for truth. May we stand for truth in all areas of our lives. When no one's watching and we have the ability to look at whatever we want to on that screen, may we stand for truth. When no one's hearing us and we have, are talking to our wives, may we stand for truth. When no one's hearing us and we're talking to our husbands, may we stand for truth. May we, by his grace, be about identifying truth in others and encouraging them onward in the truth. This is desperately needed in the, birth, in the body of Christ, in the church. It's so easy to say, oh, you could be better here. Oh, you're falling short there. But may we be about identifying truth in one's life, encouraging them onward by identifying the gospel of Jesus Christ in their lives. Not because that they have done something, Oh no, but because God in his richest mercy and grace has poured out his love upon that individual and indwelt in them the Holy Spirit and given the abilities to now do things that they would have never been able to do without Christ within them. Let's pray. Father, we come before you and we rejoice at this, at this, at this truth. Father, we wouldn't be here today if we, if we did nothing this week but sin 24-7 and yet we're here today desiring to know your word, there's grace there in our lives worked out by the Holy Spirit. And yet, Father, you've given us many times this week when we could look back and, and even in the midst of the, the struggles, even in the midst of the failures, being able to see you working and changing us, sometimes slower than we would like, but moving us, Father, drawing us into a better conformity to your Son, the way, the truth, the life. Father, we, we delight to see that, and may we rejoice in that today. May we rejoice in that truth in others' lives and in our lives as well. 
And may that encourage us and strengthen us and embolden us and empower us this week to, to press forward, to continue to move forward in this, in this walking out of the Christian life. May it be that which we hold to firmly when the difficulties come, as we know they will. But Father, may we, may we always have this work of Christ for us upon our behalf, as even now is being sung around your throne, worthy as the Lamb. May that be the, the central theme of our life this week. That is the, the anchor and the rock that we can hold firm to when seemingly everything else is blowing about. Oh, Father, we rejoice to see uh, again, Father, as we want to do each day, but do this morning, rejoice to see here in this word the, the joy that we have in the gospel with one another and the, the privilege that we have in the gospel, the privilege that has been granted to us in Christ and in Christ alone. We thank you, Father, for this word to our souls this morning and may our hearts be filled um, and strengthened for this coming week. In Jesus' precious and holy name we pray, amen.